0: Thank you, Christina. And um, thank you, worship team. It was good to have um, Madeline home with us over Thanksgiving. And it was great that Ben accompanied her and he accompanied us today in worship. And so glad to have them. Um, Ben's parents are missionaries. And so he was not able to be with them for Thanksgiving. So he was with us for Thanksgiving. And so it's always good to have extended family members in the kingdom of God in in our homes and to welcome them. In fact, the Bible says to do that, if, to, if you offer hospitality to strangers, I mean, he wasn't a stranger, but uh, you could entertain angels that way. And so, yeah, so it was good to have them. So hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving weekend, and hopefully you won't stop being thankful now that it's, you know, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and as we enter into this Advent season, we are not going to do a special Advent series. We are going to finish up the Trust the Story series that we've been in, and we may have to put a couple weeks together to make sure we do it, because uh, we will be changing locations as a church in January. Um, January 10th will be, most likely will be our last Sunday in this building, and then on January the 17th, uh, we'll meet for service at the Fine Arts Center, which is straight down 9th Street here. And our offices and our some of our other meetings are going to be located downtown. And uh, a letter is going to go out tomorrow explaining some of that, some of the help we're going to need over the month of December to start packing some of the things we need to pack. And so we just encourage you to continue to pray and stand with us and help during this time. Uh, a lot of things that are going to go into the next couple of weeks. Um, and... I know as I I sent out the, the email originally, there's so much mixed emotions right now in our hearts because this building carries a lot of memories for us. I mean, those of us that have been here a long time, maybe those that have been here even longer, there are encounters with God that happened in this room. And if you read through the Old Testament, there are, every time there was an encounter with God, build an altar. Um, And they were supposed to build that so that every time they saw it, they would remember what God did in that moment. So that it would carry on throughout their lives. So their kids would ask about it. Hey, tell us about that. Why is that there? So that they would pass on the faithfulness, the goodness of God. And there are going to be times when we drive by this building. And I'm excited that this building is going to be a house of worship for a people group that have been persecuted and have really been homeless for a number of years, and they're going to have a home, and they're going to worship. And I can't wait till COVID is done, and uh, we can pack this place with them, and uh, we can actually join them in a worship service sometime, and, and I think we will at one point. And uh, COVID won't last forever, and uh, we're, we're going to find a way. So there's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot to be anxious about. Um, And there's a lot to be sober about. And so all of that is in this moment. But just continue to pray and continue to trust. And uh, we're going to continue to communicate with you in the weeks ahead. But for today, we're coming into part 33 of Trust the Story. And um, I was thinking the other day, we actually started this, if you remember, when COVID started. So that was like part one, you know, first week on our own. And uh, I'm like, maybe when we get done with it, um, COVID will be done. So I'm going to hurry up and finish this up just in case that's the case. And then uh, we won't have to worry about it anymore. But trusting the story has been about how we read the Bible. This is something the Lord put on my heart last year for us to do in 2020. And 2020, for a lot of Christian organizations, for a lot of um, churches and groups, even in the assemblies of God, has been all about engaging in the Bible. Being getting back in the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible. And this was a part of it. It was making sure we know how to read the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books that was written over a span of 1600 years by about 40 different people. And yet it is one full story of God's revelation of who he is and how he has been dealing with mankind since the beginning. In fact since before the beginning because we know that I already alluded to it Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world he was with God at the beginning in creation he was obviously with God before creation because in some way he was slain before the foundation of the world so there there is this God that for some reason created us not because he needed us God is self-existent he doesn't need us But he wanted us. He wanted fellowship with us. He wanted partnership with us. He wanted to commission us to be his image bearers on the planet he created, known as Earth. And that's been our calling all along. And we have to be sure that we trust that God is still at work in his story, even though the pages of this book have been kind of closed, if you will. These are the books, the the Bible, the people who walked with God in Revelation, but that does not mean God no longer speaks to us today. It does not mean that God no longer wants to interact with us the way he interacted in these pages. This has been given to show us who God is and how he is at work in our world. He's still at work in our world. So we've been using the book, The Untold Story, to give us a little bit of a background, to give us a little bit more understanding. And last week, we read the book of Titus, this week, we're going to read the Gospel of John. Okay, so the Gospel of John this week, and then we'll talk about it next Sunday. But I've, I've been looking forward to Titus. I say that every week, don't I? I've been looking forward to this book. I've been looking forward to this book. But Titus is such a small book, but there's so much packed into this tiny book that I think you're going to love it. And if you don't, just say, hey, Pastor Tom, I loved it today. And uh, that'll make me feel better about myself. Um, and so, I'm just kidding, you don't have to tell me that, I don't need to feel better about myself, I'm good. But anyway, putting things in order, and I'll show you in a moment why uh, we, I picked that title, but when we talk about reading the Bible as a story, that's what we've been talking about, reading it as a story. Please understand, there's two important things I, I need you to know. One, reading the Bible as a story does not make it less infallible. Reading the Bible as a story does not make it less infallible, meaning it doesn't fail. It's perfect. Reading it as a story, sometimes we hear that and we think, oh, then the Bible's not perfect or the Bible's not authoritative. Yes, it is. It's totally authoritative. It's totally infallible. And reading it as a story doesn't make that less. It actually puts it into a context so that we can correctly apply it to our lives and to our situation today. In fact, I think reading the Bible as a story helps us to avoid over-corrections. We are really good in church history at over-correcting. What I mean by that is if you trace revivals throughout history, something has been missing in the body of Christ, and then it gets rediscovered in the word of God, and then we emphasize it to a point that we almost overemphasize it to the neglect of the other things that we already know about scripture, and then this is in new imbalance. Martin Luther is credited with saying, church history is like a drunk man on a horse. No sooner does he fall off on the left that he mounts again just to fall off on the right. This is what we tend to do, go back and forth. But if we would look at the Bible as a story, I think we would learn to correct that. And I don't know that this is something that I thought, hey, when we get to the end of this, every one of us is going to be able to do this perfectly. I've been trying to learn to read the Bible as a story for seven years, and I still don't know how. So I guarantee you that we're not going to be able to have this mastered by the time we come to the end of December. But my hope is that we begin to understand the Scripture in a whole new way and begin to apply it in a whole new way. I want to share with you a quote from a book by Scott McKnight called The Blue Parakeet. The Blue Parakeet. It's basically, it's based on the fact that one day he was bird watching and there was a blue parakeet in the middle of the birds and so the blue parakeet was out of place because it obviously escaped from someone's house but it acted a certain way and caused the other birds to act a certain way. That's not the point. The point is there are passages in the Bible that are hard for us to understand. And we don't know how to deal with those passages. And we sometimes just ignore them. We like put them on a shelf and we're like, we don't know what to do with that one, so we're just going to put it over there. Um, And all denominations do this. Because if you take any one of our theologies, there are passages of Scripture that seem to make our theology... eh, it's it's hard to to wrap our minds around. And so those blue parakeet passages are best understood by reading the Bible as a story. And this is what he writes. Many of us will be tempted to take the shortcuts when we read the Bible, especially when we encounter a blue parakeet passage. Instead of reading each passage in its storied context, we will zoom in on getting out of the Bible what we want. Once again, the shortcuts we have all learned in reading the Bible are this, to treat the Bible as a collection of laws, to treat the Bible as a collection of blessings and promises, to treat the Bible as a Rorschach ink inkblot onto which we can protect our own ideas, you know, the ink blots they're not real pictures. You go to a counselor and they're like, what do you see when you look at this? That's how a lot of us treat the Bible. We're like, what do you see when you read the Bible? What do you see in this passage? Sometimes we treat the Bible like an ink blot. To treat the Bible as a giant puzzle that we're to puzzle together and to treat one of the Bible's authors as a maestro. Okay, there's about 40 different authors, but we all have our favorites. And throughout church history, one of our favorites has been the Apostle Paul. And so we read the Scripture through the context of everything Paul wrote from Romans to Timothy, and that's how we get our theology. And then sometimes the words of Jesus come along, and they kind of almost seem like they contradict things that Paul said. And we don't know what to do it. And that's why we can't just take one person. We take them all. But... He goes on to say, we have only one other genuine option, to read the Bible from front to back as a redemptive message shaped by the king and his Kingdom story. Before we summarize what we said about the story, let's see what's wrong with each of these shortcuts. Yes, strategy will guide us to something true about the Bible. There are laws. There are blessings and promises. There are moments when we see the Bible in as something about our own lives. There are parts of the Bible that we are challenged to puzzle together, and there are maestros, many of them. But there are problems with each of these. The Bible is more than laws, and each law is connected to its context. The Bible is more than blessings and promises. There are some warnings and threats as well. The Bible is something that comes to us from God and not something onto which we can impose our wishes and desires. The Bible is a story to be read, not a divinely scattered puzzle to be pieced together into a system that makes sense of it all. Oh, we love to make sense of it all, don't we? The Bible is a collection of wiki stories of the story, and each author is a maestro, but one voice at The table. It is tempting to return to the safety of our former reading habits. But if we listen to the blue parakeet passages in the Bible, which are there at God's direction, and if we think about how we are reading them, the Bible somehow unfolds before our eyes as a brilliant story. So the point of these 33 weeks has been to treat the Bible as one complete redemptive story still speaking to us today. And I bring up this today because we're going to see it as we look at the second part of Titus in a little bit, but we're going to go to the first part. So Titus, like Timothy, we talked about Timothy, Paul discipled Titus, but Titus was a Greek. Titus was not a Jew. So Titus was never circumcised. Remember Timothy, Paul circumcised, but Titus he did not because you do not have to be circumcised to be saved now. This is what we've wrestled with in the story. But Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus and he sends Titus to Crete. Crete, compared to Ephesus, is like a step down in the worldly standards, okay? Ephesus is like a major port city. It's a wealthy city. It's this great place. But Crete is like the back country. Crete's like a tiny island. The people are, actually, we're going to read, the people are barbarians there. So I think the term redneck, I hope that's not offensive to you, um, but that would be what we would call the people from the island of Crete. They'd be rednecks, okay? They'd be people that in sophisticated world you'd look at and be like, yeah, I don't want to go to Crete. I want to go to Ephesus. And so Paul starts his letter, Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I I, I just love, Paul, when he just writes, you know, the opening of his letter, read that again with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is why he's writing, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Love it. He promised it before the beginning of time. And which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order... What was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul has planted a church in Crete, but he left, and there are some things that need to be put in order. Just like every church throughout history, they've got some problems. Because when you put a group of people together that have different ideas, different backgrounds, different thoughts, different genders, different everything, all of a sudden you get a boiling Pot, I mean, a melting pot. Um, And there's some friction and there's some tension and there's some false teaching and there's some people living for themselves. And Paul doesn't freak out. He doesn't say, You got to get in there and you got to. He just says, I want you to finish what we started in Crete. And the first thing is to appoint elders. And what he does in chapter one, we don't have time to go through this, but he gives these characteristics of elders. And I've seen these passages used to. To, oh, in ways that the Apostle Paul, I believe, would rule over in his grave. So there's a passage that says you have to manage your household well. And so I've watched pastors and deacons who have children who aren't serving the Lord faithfully had people in the church walk up and say, well, you know, because your child is wayward, you're, you're really, according to the Scripture, not qualified to be an elder in the church. Ha. Huh. When we stop reading the Bible as a story, that's what we do. And that's why that's a problem. Because the Apostle Paul is not giving a list so that we can't find anybody to qualify as an elder. Because if we took that list, black and white, there wouldn't be one person qualified to serve as an elder in the church. Period. Not one. And so what Paul is doing is he's showing the seriousness, the responsibility, the soberness. Don't just pick someone who has a reputation of acting the opposite of this in all the ways, but it's not this black and white list to try to disqualify everybody either. And so Paul is saying, hey, Tim, excuse me, hey, Titus, make sure you put these these types of people in eldership within the church. Notice again that word elders is plural. Not just go find one pastor, but find elders, pastors, prophets, evangelists, teachers. Get everybody involved, these elders that are going to serve the church, that are going to help you to stand against the false doctrine and the misbehavior that he's going to spend the rest of the letter talking about. So he goes into chapter 2. We're going to come back to the rest of chapter 1 in a second. But in chapter 2, he starts dealing with This idea of teaching what is right with sound doctrine. Right here. Remember, we put the chapters in. So Paul didn't write a letter and go chapter two. He just wrote his letter. So he says at the beginning, hey, unfinished business, appoint elders. Okay, then we come to chapter two. You have to teach sound doctrine. And there'd be a hearty amen from everyone in this room. You gotta teach what's in accordance with sound doctrine. We gotta have sound doctrine. And so then he goes on to say, Teach the older men to to live this way. Teach the older women to live this way. Teach the younger women to live this way. Teach the Isn't that weird? You gotta teach what's in accordance with sound doctrine, teach the older men to live this way. So he's talking about their behavior, not their beliefs. And when we think about doctrine, we think, oh, I just got to get my doctrine right. If I get my doctrine right. But there are so many of us in the church that have all of our doctrine right. But our orthopraxy, the way we live out our doctrine, is off. You have to live the doctrine that you claim to believe. We cannot live apart from sound doctrine. And at the end of these groupings, because he talks to old men, older women, Younger women, younger men. Then he says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things that you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So he's saying doctrine shows up in how you live and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Let me here's what ungodliness is, okay? Write this down. Ungodliness is anything outside the character of God. Anything outside the character of God. God is good. So if we're not if we're not as he says right here, eager to do what is good, we're outside the character of God. God is kind. If we are being unkind, at any time, for any reason, toward anyone, we're outside the character of God. Because it's the kindness of God that has led us to repentance. It's the kindness of God when we were his enemies that led us to him. And so, we look at this and we're like, ungodliness, I got to stay away from sexual immorality, I got to stay away from all these other sins that people out there are committing And we're okay with the ungodliness of selfishness and pride and arrogance and the flesh and unforgiving and apatheticness and all of these things in our lives that go against God. God is not apathetic. God is at work. God is not full of fear. God is full of hope. God is not walking around complaining. I mean, the first song we sang today, no matter what happens, I will not complain. In fact, in the Word, it says, do everything without complaining. So if you complain, if I complain, ungodliness, period. Grace comes to teach us to say no. And you know, it would be so wise of us in the middle of a complaint to just stop and say no. No, I'm not going to do it. Now, again, before we're like, oh, yeah, I complain all the time. I'm such a bad person. Stop that, too, (laughs) because of course you're a bad person. We all are, and it's only the mercy of God that gives us anything to stand on. And so the grace of God given to us to say no to ungodliness and also worldly passions. Here's what worldly passions are. They're the desires of our flesh that are out of control. The desires of our flesh that are out of control. The desires of our flesh are not bad. They're not. When we don't know how to say no, that's when they're bad. How many of you love the desire to eat food? I love the desire to eat food. If we didn't have a desire to eat food, we would not eat food, and then we would die. So you need a desire to eat food. But how many of you know, don't raise your hand, how many of you know the desire to eat food, sometimes it's hard to say no when you should say no. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have heart disease and clogged arteries. And that's why we're unhealthy. And by the way, skinny people can be as far more unhealthy as people who are overweight. So this desire is good. But when I have like a helping of Cool Whip on my pumpkin pie, that's bigger than the pie. (laughs) I did that this week. Guilty. But I can't do that every day. I have to know when to say enough. The desire, our sexual desires are good. There are. But if we don't know when to say no, if we don't know when to say enough, that's what this is about. That's why he used the word self-control earlier. We have to know how to behave as older men, older women, younger women, younger men. This is what, because the, the Cretans, look back to chapter one. I love that Paul says this. One of Crete's own prophets I wouldn't, I don't know why we use the word prophets because he's not referring to a believer. He's referring to like a poet. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. (laughs) Oh, way to bless the Cretans today. I mean, so they're known for the fact that they don't know how to say no. They just, whatever goes, goes. They're hedonistic. Can I tell you something? Change Creations to American. This is us. And if you can't admit this, I mean, we don't know when to say enough. We don't know when to say when. We don't know how to put our desires in check. We always need more. We always need bigger. We always need better. So we sometimes need to be rebuked sharply just like them so that we will be pure Okay? I don't have time to go into the rest of that passage. I would. But again, he's just going after those Judaizers Judaizers that are trying to say, well, you got to keep the law. You got to keep following all these things and and believe in Jesus. And Paul's like, how many times do I have to say this? But I want to get to the blue parakeet passage. Because when Paul is talking about the groups of people that we just talked about in chapter 2, he starts with the older men We're going to skip them. So if you're an older man, you just got to go back and read it for yourself. And then he talks to the older women, tells them not to drink too much wine, tells them you know to be self-controlled, tells them some other stuff. And then he tells them this: the older women, the older women then can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure. Sounds good. To be busy at home. To be kind. And to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Okay? Don't check out on me, ladies. We're com- I'm gonna, I'm gonna, don't check out on me. Okay. So then we got to skip to verse 9. Same passage. Paul's writing a letter. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Be subject to so, this cap, so that God's word is not maligned. Be subject to so that you will make his teaching attractive. Then chapter 3, which we put there, Paul says to everyone, remind the people. To be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be, do, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Now, I am probably in the next 15 minutes going to say something that might tick you off. Please hear what I'm about to say in the way that I want it to be said. I don't want to tick you off. But I do want to make sure that we take these three passages and we don't misalign them in our lives. Okay? Because these three passages, this is a blue parakeet moment. It's not a coincidence that Paul uses the exact same word to be subject. And he says, wives to husbands, slaves to masters, and everybody to government authorities. As believers, we all tend to pick and choose our scriptures. We do not interpret all of these the same way, and yet all of them are saying the exact same thing. So why have we chosen to pick and choose some of them? And I'll explain what I mean by that. Let's start with wives, be subject to your husbands and be busy at home. Love that. Um, What we hear sometimes when we read this and when we take other scriptures and we remove all of the passages out of the Bible that say what wives are supposed to do to their husbands and we line them up, okay? Because that's the very American way to read the Bible. If if as a wife I need to know what to do, I just look at all of the verses that say wives and then I write them down and then I live them out. But if you divorce those from... Interesting choice of words. If you divorce those from the story of the Bible, you get a totally different thought process. So in this context, we have to ask ourselves, is what Paul's saying a promotion of a hierarchy where husbands have to be the head and wives have to be subject to them? Well, let's talk about that for a second. In this culture women were uneducated. Women were treated as property. Women were sometimes used in a sexual way in false religions to be like a gateway to a spiritual world, stemming from the fact that Eve was actually created first. We talked about this when we talked about Ephesus, and that's why Paul told Timothy in Ephesus, don't let women take authority. I do not believe, if you read the Bible from front to back as a redemptive story, that it says women should not teach. I don't believe that it creates this hierarchy where men have to rule over their, husbands, their wives. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches because there are times that there is something in the Bible that contradicts that, that train of thought. And if we contradict it once, then it cannot mean that at all. Because we cannot make a dogmatic statement and then have it, well, sometimes it applies and sometimes it doesn't. We have to pick and choose. I believe the kingdom of God breaks down every barrier, every distinction in gender, in race. It makes us all equal at the foot of the cross. And I know as Americans, we're like, well, but if someone's not in charge, who makes the final decision? Because we don't know how to interact as a kingdom. We don't know how to sit at a table with people that think differently with, than us and have it be that I'm, it's not who's right and who's wrong. Especially as Americans, somebody's always got to be right and someone's always got to be wrong. Rather than the fact that realizing we have all been created in the image of God and the only way that I can see the image of God more fully is to realize by myself I'm not a body. I need other parts. And the only, sometimes those parts don't function the way that I think they ought to function. But guess what? I'm not the head. I'm just another part. Who's the head of the body? Christ. And every part of the body comes together and we function in a way. Jesus himself broke down those barriers when he allowed Mary to sit at his feet and be a disciple. When he allowed women into his world to follow him, to support him, to walk with him, Jesus broke down these barriers. And people are like, well, why didn't he come out and say it? He didn't have to say it. If you understand the culture he's living in, everything he's doing is a loud testimony that things are changing. But what we as Americans like to do, we like to change everything quickly. We like to change everything fast. So the best way to change it is create a law that changes it for everyone all time. Do it, change it, change it. Make everyone behave the same way. That's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom works from within. The kingdom is like a little bit of yeast that gets worked into the dough, and it begins to to infect the whole dough. That's what we see happening in the early church. And I don't think the early church comes out and says, okay, we're breaking down the barriers. Men and women are equal. Because you know what would have happened? The culture around them would have said, no way. We don't want that. And they would have maligned the word of God. So Paul comes along and he's saying, hey, in your homes, women can learn. Paul gives the proper way in Corinthians for women to prophesy in the church. And then a few chapters later, earlier, he said women shouldn't prophesy in the church. That seems so confusing. But if you take it out and you look at it from the beginning, Genesis chapter one, God said, let us, God said, let us. God is an us. I love that God is in us, and he wants us to be in us, too, with him, and this is the one thing we don't get right, and Jesus said, if they get this right, and they would be in us, just like you and I are one, if they would be one, the whole world would see it and would know that I came from the Father. We're busting our butts trying to get everybody to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and if we would just be one as he is one, if we would just stop having it to have it my way, I'm the right one, you're the wrong one. Yeah, selfish, pride. If we would just see that God said no, it's all about us. So he makes mankind in their image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the earth. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female. He created them. Male and female. The image of God is seen best in male and female. There is nothing in Genesis 1 or 2 that insists on any type of hierarchy. There is nothing. We read it all into it. There is nothing that says Adam is in charge of Eve. Eve is the lesser party. In fact, if we remember, Eve is the the opposition to Adam, but in a good way. Remember? In a good way. Remember (laughs) the lobsters? (laughs) In a good way. So, image bearers of God brought together. So then we come to Genesis chapter 3. They've sinned. The woman said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Sorry, ladies. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There it is. The question I have is, is that a prescriptive statement or a descriptive statement? Is that God saying, okay, from now on, this is what's, what it's going to be. Men are in charge. Women, they're going to rule over them, but you're going to want to rule over them. Or is God describing what happens when sin mars us? Is God describing that men and women were meant to be co-heirs, co-image bearers with him on the earth, and yet now because of sin, this is what's happened. And now that Jesus has restored the kingdom, could there be a better way? Now, I'm not saying, I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that that way of viewing things is correct. There are people on my side, there are people on other people's side that says, nope, the husbands have to be the head of the home. But let me give you at least rules of engagement for however you want to see those passages. Husbands and wives, here's your rules of engagement. One, both of you are necessary for the full display of the image of God. Both of you are necessary for the full display of the image of God. If you're single right now, don't shut me out because the community of believers, this is the same thing. Because Paul compares this in Ephesians, husbands and wives to the church. It's a great mystery, but it's the same for the church. All of us are necessary for the full display of the image of God. All of us. Not just the elders, not just the pastors, all of us. Together. Rule number two. Both of you must be active in the home. You have to speak, you have to serve, and you have to be responsible. Period. Don't let the fact that Paul says be busy at home think that the cooking should be done by the wife. If the wife burns the food and the man's a chef, by all means, man, cook. If your wife is exhausted, get up and make something for the whole family. Serve them. This isn't about who's in charge. This is about serving one another, having equal responsibility for the home, for the children. Nobody can be apathetic. Nobody. Everybody's got responsibility, husbands and wives. And rule number three, both of you have to exercise humility and love. Both of you have to exercise humility and love. You cannot dominate and you cannot manipulate. See, domination is the active or aggressive outburst to try to control someone. I try to control you by being angry, by being out. I mean, I have to be able to speak. I have to be able to speak when I'm hurt. I have to be able to speak when there's a problem. I have to be able to speak up. I can't be aggressive. I can't try to dominate you by my aggressive behavior. However, I can try to manipulate you by my passive behavior as well. I can just, well, I'll just be silent. I'll just be apathetic and see how they like that. I just won't. Come on, don't act like none of us have ever done this. But this is not the way we act in the home. So, both are necessary. Both have to be active. Both have to exercise humility. That's how we flourish as husbands and wives and become image bearers of God. And then he says to slaves, isn't that interesting? The Bible is criticized actually because it never speaks out against slavery. What do we do with that? Was God opposed to the ending of slavery in America? I mean, because it looks like Paul's just saying, hey, you got to do this because you don't want to... I don't think God was opposed to the ending of slavery in America. What I think is in the context, slavery then and slavery in our current world were totally different. But I don't believe that they totally did away with slavery at that time. Because again, they're not trying to change the culture by changing the rules. They're trying to change the culture by changing lives. And so you tell slaves, slaves, you don't have to be free in order to serve God. You can serve God as a slave. Masters, you better treat your slaves right if you're going to keep your slaves. But Paul writes to to Philemon and he actually tells them right here, hey, you should let Onesimus go. You should send him back to me. You should release him. I'm not going to force you to do it. I'm not going to make it a command. I'm a, see, we want commands. We want black and white. We want it to be easy. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And God's like, it's not about that. It's not about whether you have slaves or don't have slaves. It's not about the what's it, what's it about? It's about my heart. It's about being transformed. It's about treating every single person with dignity and value and honor. And if you're going to have a slave, they better be treated with dignity. Because remember, you can sell yourself into slavery at this time. So it was like an indentured servant. And if you're going to have one of those, you better treat them with value and dignity and honor. And if they're a believer, you better treat them as an equal in the kingdom of God. That's what the book of Philemon was all about. And so we have to learn to be content in whatever situation. But Paul writes and says, hey, slaves, if you have a chance to be free, get your freedom. I mean, you don't have to stay in that place. But we read these passages about slavery and about how women, and we're like, well, maybe, maybe this, maybe that. No, maybe nothing. It's all about our hearts. It's all about how we treat people. And then we got to come to the, the good one, the one that affects all of us. The government. Oh, yeah. Because, see, I was raised in a, cult, in, a, in a home where I was taught, the Bible says we always obey our government unless they tell you to do something that's a sin. You just, you obey. Because that's what the Scripture teaches, and that's what Paul says here. If you remember Daniel... When Daniel was told that he had to eat vegetable or had to eat meat and he knew he couldn't, he didn't protest. He didn't say, there's no way. Eat no meat. Hashtag no meat. That's not what he did. He made an appeal. He made an appeal in a dictatorship and said, how about this? How about you test us and see if we just eat these vegetables, how we look at the end of 10 days. And in, in our democratic America, we think, well, no, we just have to fight and do we hashtag and we have to protest and we have to do all these things. And if they could change the heart of a dictator, how much more could we do this in a democratic republic? We don't have to be mean. We can handle this in a right way. But for some of us, we want to to just blame it on sin is increasing, wickedness, the end time slope, and all of this. And I think the way our world is acting right now is because the love of the church has grown cold. Jesus warned this in Matthew chapter 24 that there would be an increase in wickedness because the agape of many would grow cold. And some of us look at that and we're like, well, the agape is growing cold because people are, are sinning and they're doing all these things. But what about the agape love that we're supposed to have toward our neighbor who is like ourselves? There's a debate in early Judaism about whether or not the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. Remember, they came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, of course, looks at them and says, show me the coin, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's. There is a debate, understand this, In the church world of that day, some people believed it's our requirement to pay taxes. Some people believed it's not. We cannot pay taxes and stay faithful to God. And so they try to get Jesus to weigh in. Should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes? And Jesus doesn't say yes or no, he just gives an answer that puts both of them silent. So, we have masks. Oh, should we wear them or should we not? What do you say, Jesus? And we're looking for Jesus to give us a yes or a no. And I think Jesus would give an answer that would silence both sides. See, if you believe that you need to wear a mask and that's the best way to support our community and support good health, promote it. Do it, but do it in the spirit of Christ. If you believe that individual freedom is paramount, then support it and promote it in the spirit of Christ. But when we start demanding that our way is the only way, we are no longer acting as citizens of the kingdom. See, in a democracy, I believe we have a responsibility to speak up. We have a a responsibility to vote. We have a responsibility to be supportive whenever we can, but even to be proactive in our support. So often, we only want to complain about our government when they do something we don't like, and we really don't do a whole lot to actually support and promote our government when they're not doing anything or when they're asking for our help. And we are a church that wants to work for the peace and the prosperity of our city. Not just point out what they're doing wrong, but coming alongside them and saying, hey, how can we help? What's the greatest need of our city? What can we do? And that's what Paul is telling us here in Titus when he says, remind the people, be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And whichever side you fall, on masks or on taxes or on politics, please listen to these next words. Slander no one, be peaceable, be considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. And why does he say that? Well, let's read the last part of the chapter. Because at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasure. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Our doctrine needs to be correct. Our practice needs to be correct. This is what Paul taught to the church on the island of Crete. This is what we need to learn and understand as a church. We have to live as if our doctrine matches our lives. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what he said? Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. What's that mean? To love God with everything. Does that mean that I don't swear? Does that mean that I don't, you know, do mean things to people on purpose? Does that mean I don't? Well, he told us what it means. If you want to love God with everything, love your neighbor who is like yourself. Love your neighbor who's like yourself. Because again, we, our doctrine said, oh, Pastor Tom, I know that it's only the mercy of God. I know, man, I needed the mercy of God. Thank God. And so our doctrine is correct, but our practice isn't because we're, treat, we're mistreating our enemies. We're mistreating people that mistreat us. And that's the deal breaker. I don't care what we claim to believe. It's what we're living out in our daily lives that matters. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't act like this anymore. You've been given the grace of God to say no to anything outside the character of God and to say no that worldly passions know when it's enough. So that's what, that's, I think, what we need to hear. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the mercy that you've given to us. God, I thank you for the grace that you've given to us to be able to say no. To be able to say no to everything that's against your character and your nature. God, to know when to say no to our selfish, worldly desires, our flesh. God, to know that eating is a good thing. The sexual desires you gave us are a good thing. God, the desire to exercise, the desire to create things, the desire to use our hands to build things. God, all of these things are good desires. We just need to know when to say enough. God, we we need to know how to act the way that you've treated us. And so, God, I pray today for every person in this room, every person that's online, God, give us eyes to see our condition before you. Give us eyes that see how desperately we needed your mercy, how desperately we still need your mercy. God, no no amount of good behavior since you've come into our lives takes away the fact that it's all still based on your mercy. And so forgive us, Forgive us not for the incorrect doctrine of thinking we've earned our salvation, but forgive us for the mistreatment of others because we've allowed the idea that we're better than them, we're behaving better than them, to slip into our behaviors towards them. Holy Spirit, wreck us today. Strip away the selfishness, the pride, the arrogance of our hearts. Help us to see the value in every human being on this planet as created in your image. God, even those that right now are marred by sin in their choices, in their decisions, in their attitudes. God, help us to see the value that you see in their lives. They are created in your image, they are image bearers. Help us to treat them the way you've treated us. Help us to be kind to the unkind because that's your character. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to bless those who curse us. Help us to be eager to do good. God, I thank you for the ways that you are shaking our lives as a church. Thank you for the ways, God, that you're not letting us just live out our existence on this earth in Restoration Church as just a a comfortable church where we go every week and we just hear a message and it just makes us feel good until you come. God, that you are creating in our lives a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God, you're changing everything. You're changing the way we view ourselves, you're changing the way we view our society, you're changing the way we view others, you're changing the way we view the kingdom. God, we need this. We welcome this. Holy Spirit, it's it's hard. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. But we recognize that you are good and we trust you. We trust you. And so Holy Spirit, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for wives and husbands today. God, create a partnership in every home. Create a partnership in every home with each member taking responsibility, with each one serving the other. God, with humility, with love, ruling the day, with each one bringing their God-given image to the table. God, create that in this church that we would not just be one part. God, that we would not be parts at war with each other. But God, that we would be one body as many parts around this table. God, seeing the image of God in those with different views. God, those with different personalities. Those with different insecurities. Those with different sins. God, bring us to the table. Teach us how to live this out on display for the world. That that we would be a church that lives as one so that the world would take notice. God, teach us how to engage our culture today. God, teach us how to promote justice for those who are are genuinely being oppressed. Teach us how to serve orphans and widows and the homeless and the poor. God, teach us how to, to reach out to those that are marginalized in our community. God, to go after the ones that no one else wants, the ones that everyone else ignores. God, give us a heart for those, for the least of these. God, strip away every bit of pride and selfishness from our lives. Father, forgive us for singing, I surrender all and living I surrender most. Holy Spirit, bring us to the place where we lay everything down before you to know that you can be trusted with every dream, every desire, every fear, every worry, every hurt, every betrayal, every frustration. Help us to trust you. God, I thank you for the body of believers that you are building in Restoration Church. Holy Spirit continue to unite us. We know that true unity only comes from you. Give us grace to imitate you in everything that we do and to maintain the unity that you bring. May our lives never malign the word of God. Teach us how to live out these truths in our daily lives, we pray. Holy Spirit, over this body today, I pray your blessing. I ask that you would bless them and keep them. I ask that you would cause your face to shine on them. I pray that you'd lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be gracious to them in every way. pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for bearing with me as I go over on this short book of Titus. I'd encourage you today, at some point today, to go back, read the book of Titus in its entirety,